Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys, talk to you soon. Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place, because this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast. I'm Travis Chappell's producer, Eric, and I have a huge question for you. How would you like to become a marketing wizard? Well, you're about to hear from three incredible marketers on the Build Your Network podcast. First up, we have Jay Abraham. As founder and CEO of the Abraham Group, Jay has spent his entire career solving complex problems and fixing underperforming businesses. He significantly increased the bottom line of over 10,000 clients in more than 1,000 industries and over 7,200 sub-industries worldwide. He's dealt with virtually every type of business scenario and issue. Next up, we have Jason Harris, the CEO of the award-winning creative agency Mechanism and the author of the new book, The Soulful Art of Persuasion. Jason has more than 20 years of expertise in creating provocative campaigns through a blend of soul and science. And then lastly, but not least, we have Philip Stutz, who comes from the cutthroat world of political marketing. Among his victories has over two decades of experience working on campaigns with billions of dollars in political ad spend, and has contributed to 1,273 election victories, including hundreds of U.S. House campaigns, dozens of U.S. Senate campaigns, and even three U.S. presidential victories. Guys, these are people you're not going to want to take one second to stop listening to because they have all the advice and tips you need to become a better marketer. So let's get into today's midweek mashup with Jay Abraham, Jason Harris, and Philip Stutz. 
out of curiosity, Jay, how much of your life do you think you've spent just like thinking and strategizing? Do these ideas pop into your head or do you like really take time to sit and examine and look at every single inner workings of a company before these things start shouting out? Like, is it just like standing in the shower, an idea pops in the head? Like, what's your process to get to some of these conclusions? It has evolved or devolved. I don't know which one is is better. (laughs) When I was younger, it was intuitive. I didn't really understand. Then I got clarity from some experts that I was able to to either pay or mentor in and things made sense and I understood the drivers of things. And then I started creating methodology because I would start analyzing what I had done and trying to codify it. And I created the three ways to grow a business model, the power parthenon, the strategy preeminence, the nine drivers, uh, sticking point solutions. And that became very formalized. And that was in, in methodology. As far as strategies and concepts, they just sort of came and they would come more and more the more diverse expanse of industries I became exposed to. Hmm. And there was a time when I spent a lot of time thinking. For the last, I'm older than you, obviously, by a big gap. I have spent the last five years, almost 10, 12 hours a day, serving high-paying, very complex clients around the world who come to me to solve Gordian knots. And the good news is I can do it in real time. The bad news is I've been so busy that I haven't taken a lot of contemplative and, and call thinking time. Yeah, I believe I was given the, the benefit of learning what's called deep concentrated thinking. And most people can't go below the surface. It's painful to stay with a thought deeper and try to figure out the implications, the correlations, you know, the, the different forks in the road. There's a disciplined process, I think, to to strategic thinking, to critical thinking, to consequential thinking. All of them are, are a bit different. And I think you've got to be able to expand past whatever your comfort zone is to do it. Yeah. Can you dive a little bit deeper into that process really quickly? Sure. Is that something so, you can do quickly? <laughs> thinking means taking a concept and keeping going deeper and deeper and not stopping. For example, I have an office. Can you see out that window? Yep. Yes, sir. It's a runway of, of a private airport. It's very nice. One of the nicest airports in uh, Southern California. And I look at airplanes. I look at it and I don't see an airplane take off. I wonder who's in it. I wonder where they're going. I wonder who's fixed it. I wonder who's who's certifying it. I wonder if that person's tired today, if he forgets to put a screw or a bolt on. I wonder how quickly they have to refuel. I wonder all kinds of things that fascinate me. We did a program one time called Do Something Different. For 13 weeks, I made people every week do one thing out of their comfort zone. For example, if you if your process and regimen every day, Travis is getting up, going to the bathroom, taking a shower, having a cup of coffee, reading the paper, or going online and then getting dressed and typically going to work in the pre-COVID days, I would have you still go to the bathroom because you don't want to avoid that, but do everything else opposite. If you normally drive to work down the, the highway, go down the side streets and pay attention and then Think about what different experiences, observations, feelings you had and share it. And I would do all kinds of things like that just to break people into thinking differently. Or when you drive down, you know, I go to a grocery and I'll just see a grocery. I wonder how do they how do they do logistics? How do they how do they restock? How do they know whether it's six SKUs or four? Why? What do they test? I've learned probably more than is healthy because you keep thinking way beyond the outer periphery of something and you look yeah, at all sure. the drivers. It can certainly become an obstacle to getting things done rather than yeah, yeah. a mode of getting things done. Yeah, it's, sure. a very, it's a very fine line. 
Um, Well, Jay, I want to be respectful of your time. I do want to talk with you a little bit about relationships and networking. I know that's been something that's been huge for you throughout your career. The question that I ask everybody that comes on the show to get this conversation headed in that direction is this, and I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Wow. I don't know if one or the other, if you want to be truthful, I don't know that you can separate. I mean, what you know is very powerful, but if you can't deploy it, <laughs> it's sort of a pyrrhic victory, isn't it, Travis? Yeah, right. And who right. you know, you can know some of the coolest people in the world, but if you don't have value that is exchangeable for some form of compensation, whether it's financial, whether it's psychic, whether it's connectivity, then that's pretty worthless. I I would say you probably have to have the right balance of both. And that balance is probably dynamic depending on what your outcome is. Yeah, sure. What if I gave you the answer you want? That's why I leave it open-ended. I like to hear what's that. I mean, I've been very blessed in my life. I've had some of the greatest mentors, benefactors, clients who I learned from. I've been very blessed. I've gotten to hang out with people way, way above my intellectual or pay grade. And that's been, I think, a function because they found me incomparably interesting. But the most interesting people in the world, if you want to tell people how to have great relationships, are the ones that are the most interested. Me telling you all about me isn't going to be as powerful as me learning all about you. Yeah, I mean, I've had many experiences where I've spent 99% of a conversation just asking really interesting questions about the other person that and telling him nothing about me. And I have people say, you're the most interesting person in the world. And I've told them nothing about myself. And I think that part of the, the misunderstanding about networks, connections, relationships in business or otherwise is that it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the other person. But yeah. I think value creation, far too many people go, oh, how can I add value to you? Well, that means the fact that you're asking is <laughs> in itself the first mistake, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about that's, don't that's, ask me that question? Number one, don't ask that yeah, question. But, that's the mantra of the typical networker. Hey, yeah, Travis, right. how can I add value to you? I mean, Jesus. Yeah. There's no question that's more attached than that question right there. Like if you're going to help them, there's going to be an attachment at the end of it. There's going to be another ask if you if you give them a way to add value to you. I think that the greatest, I mean, just you didn't ask the question, but I'll answer a question that was not asked. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is 
The fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. If you ask me what the greatest power of connectivity I would say it is the ability to ask meaningful, relevant, and progressive questions. Hmm. And then the second attribute would be the ability to listen and acknowledge. Because most people don't hear anything. They're so busy, Travis, queuing up what they want to say. Right. I used to do an exercise where people would say, you meet someone, they go, say, how are you? And I would say, Geez, you know, my shoulder hurts and, you know, I basically, I'd list a plethora of problems and they'd say, great, because they didn't listen. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to see if anybody listened and most right. times they're so busy, they're not hearing what you're saying because they want to talk. That has been one of the biggest blessings, external, non-expected blessings of starting a podcast, honestly, Jay, has been just having to work on your ability to ask good questions. And it bleeds into every single part of, of my career at this point, not just asking questions on an interview format like this, but in general, having more genuine curiosity and interest in the way that people live their lives has been a, a huge, huge blessing, cherry on top of doing what I get to do on a daily basis as well. That's wonderful. And I think probably one of the most, one of the quintessent ultimate or quintultimate, whatever the word is, fulfillments. But I think I learned uh, Socratic interviewing years ago. And I also realized that every human being has meaning and fascination mm. and, and differing perspectives. And, and it's really, a, it's an exhilarating process to try to discover how many different realities exist around us. Yes, I totally agree with that. I wanted to ask you this question, Jay. I'd be remiss if I didn't get to it. Who are a few of the people that you've had in your life, in your career that really came alongside you in a mentorship capacity, but also maybe in a client capacity, people that you've worked with, people that you've mentored? Who are just like a couple people that stick out to you as being huge impacts on, on your life personally? I would say I've been blessed by a lot. When I was starting out, when I worked in Entrepreneur Magazine, they let me trade advertising for experts. And I brought all the kinds of experts, famed marketing people, iconic people. Then I got into the newsletter business and I hung out with all the prominent investment advisors, economists, and people in investing. Then in the early 90s, I got involved helping Tony Robbins and he and I built a nice relationship. And then I got, when I wrote my first book, the deceased Stephen Covey was a benefactor to me. All kinds of people that were prominent authors, experts became my friends. And then I got involved in helping people in some of the real emerging areas. Uh, the number one guy in the world in Six Sigma is a friend. The number one guy in multivariable testing is a friend. The number one guy in constraint theory is a friend. I mean, you got lots of people like that. I mean, I got to travel... 80 or 90 times, not 
totally around the world, but I've been to Singapore 30 times, China 30 times, Japan 20 times, Malaysia, Italy. And, and every time I get to meet just wonderful people, both entrepreneurs and just, you know, the populace. And that's been really great. I'm friends with some, a uh, couple of really high-end hedge fund people, and they're really pretty wild and interesting. Mm. It's interesting. I started out as a performance consultant. Then I became very big in training back when it was really a huge business. We used to do every month, 600 to a thousand people at five grand a piece. And we used to do $25,000 makeovers in China through translation. And then I stopped and I do almost nothing in the information marketing world anymore. But I think some of them are interesting people. I've tended to go with really eclectic entrepreneurs and I've been blessed to hang out. I mean, I've helped Damon John for nine, 10 years, and I find him to be really a charming, authentic person. Dave Asprey from Bulletproof Coffee, I find to be a very inventive person. I've been blessed. I have so many relationships that it becomes almost uh, a haze, but it's a very good haze. It's been, I've been just blessed by having high quality people with a lot of integrity, great values, and unique belief systems and perspectives. And it's been a melting pot of, of sort of through osmosis, really gaining all kinds of understandings and insights, Travis. How have those relationships affected your life as a whole in terms of if you view life from a 30,000 foot blimp view of all the things that matter or are important or bring fulfillment to a certain extent, where would relationships rank in that hierarchy? I think relationships are probably ultimately the lifeblood of the human condition. Hmm. When somebody taught me, I mean, I've been blessed by lots of people. Somebody taught me that it's a really cool concept. I'll share it and it's universal. So anytime you interact with anyone, anywhere for any reason, no matter where they are on the socioeconomic plane, your job is to make their life better off because you were in it. That's been a driving thought. But secondly, I try to learn, gain, benefit, not selfishly, but meaningfully. Meaningfully is a better word than selfishly. From every interaction, when I have time, when I'm done with this conversation with you, if I have the time, if I don't have a scheduled call, I will spend 10 minutes saying, what did I just experience from that? And I will ask myself in many different dimensions. I want to know, what did I listen and hear that I really admired from Travis? Questions you pose thoughtfulness you showed, way you communicated, phraseology that was very impactful. What did I like about my response and conduct? What did I not? Did I talk too fast? Did I get too tangential? Was I too esoteric? What can I be better at next time? What can I not do? And I think most people don't do that. They just go through life so rapidly and distortedly, they don't, and it's just a big haze. Yeah, it's a lack of intention. If you ask anybody, tell me today everything that happened, most people couldn't. So curious to know the timeline that was, you know, between taking that first job, you know, filling up inflatable beer cans um, and starting your agency. Like what was the what was the timeline there? And what do you think the top two or three lessons were during that timeline to help you make your agency so successful? So the timeline between, I worked probably at five or six companies, I would say over 
probably a 12 year period. Okay. Um, and I always knew it wasn't, am I going to open my own thing? It was always, when am I going to open my own thing? Yeah. And so I felt like in order to do that, you need some, I mean, this is just my perspective. Doesn't mean it's right for, you know, your audience or other people. I needed some, um, for me, my confidence is gained through experience and having some kind of gravitas of handling a lot of different situations with a lot of different personalities and understanding what I wanted to take from the, the leaders that I was under and when I wanted to sort of toss out. Um, and, and without having that experience, it would be much harder to have a roadmap of what I was trying to build. And so I kind of knew all along that I had that plan. And when I felt like the time was right and I met some partners that seemed like people that we could do business with, we're still partners today. Uh, we decided to, you know, start, start something up. And um, uh, it was actually my second, I took another swing at starting something before uh, the current company uh, mechanism. But um, I really sort of plotted that idea. And, and some people might be born with that confidence, you know, right out of the womb and they don't need all that experience. But for me to build what I wanted to build, I had to know what I was building and I had to be confident about it. Tell me about the decision to bring on partners. Was that always part of the plan or was it something that you decided to do when you came down to it? Well, there was, um, it's sort of, I started, well, my story is a little bit different. I started a company that was just me. And so I had this sort of chip on my shoulder that I, I could do something on my own and I wanted to do something on my own, but I went about it in a bit of a reckless way where I was, you know, doing the ideation, the production, the management of the clients, the invoicing, the billing, really everything. And so I did that for about two, almost two years and um, almost had like a nervous breakdown because I, I was just trying to, do everything myself because I thought that's what entrepreneurs did when they started um, incorrectly. And then um, some friends of mine had sort of, they were also starting something at the same time and we sort of merged our companies to, into one. And I realized the power of collaboration is really critical for success. And if you're trying to do everything yourself, um, some people can do it, but it's really you know, business is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you're, if you're sprinting the whole time, you're, you know, people are going to pass you by because you're just going to like fall apart. And that's what happened. And that's when I realized that I needed, I needed partners to create something meaningful. Yeah. Tell me more about the collaboration uh, thing that you just said, because I think there's a lot of people that are still holding on to the old school style of uh, hardcore competition. And while I think healthy competition is really good for people and good for the market and for the consumer, um, I do think that we're moving more into an age of collaboration versus competition where everybody has an abundance mindset and it kind of increases the overall you know, um, market cap of a certain industry. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I couldn't be a bigger proponent of collaboration. And I think competition versus collaboration there's really really no um there's nothing that would ever beat collaboration i think collaboration competition can be really good in the short run 
Um, if you're either creating a competitive culture, I mean, of course, there's going to be some competition. Um, but if you're creating like a hyper competitive culture versus a we tell everyone everything and everyone works on projects together and we are we all share the success and we all share in the blame when there's failure, it's just going to be a much better, richer culture with way more successes and a lot less um, uh, fallout, you know, a lot less churn of people and competition. It just sets up um, the mentality of, um, of, of, you know, winning by yourself, which I am, you know, hugely against. Yeah. So do you think it's just like ego and selfishness that prevents people from being collaborative? Or do you think that they legitimately don't think that it works? Um, I think it's very hard for some people to share. And I think collaboration is all about sharing. That's why we started our company. A lot of advertising firms will have, you know, two or three names on the door, like a, like a, a, a law, law firm. And we consciously wanted it to be one name, you know, mechanism and the people behind the firm were sort of less important. And whenever we're talking about making decisions, we're always thinking about the best interest of the company and not the individuals. And I think the people that are still living in the you know competitive mindset, I think they're um, you know they might have a lot of short-term success, but in the long run, uh, they're not going to have a lot of friends left in the end. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. I think it's I think it comes down to can you share credit? Can you share the stage? Um, do you do you want to sh- do you want to share? And if you if you can't do that, um, there's a, there's you, it's not that you can't be successful but it's that you can't be successful long-term. You can't ride that success unless you're a billionaire or born rich or, you know, right. inherited a lot of money, then you can do whatever you want. Um, but I strongly believe that collaboration is, 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 you know, the of paramount, paramount importance. So, so that leads me to talk a little bit about your book, the soulful art of persuasion. Um, I have a copy in front of me right now, and I want to read a little excerpt from that, um, to touch on what we were were exactly just talking about long-term success and relationships and things. And and when I read this, it was, it hit home really close for me just because this is what my entire show is about is long-term relationship building and how it factors into your success. And, uh, so this is what it says, demonstrate that you care about things, other than just making money or getting what you want as quickly as possible. Don't sell anything you wouldn't buy yourself, whether it's a product or a service or an idea. Don't be afraid to say no, even if it costs you something in the short term. Care about your relationships and do your best to see that none of them ever drops to zero. And show that you're genuinely committed to whatever you're advocating by putting your own skin in the game. Let go of short-term transactional thinking and start playing the long game. So you already mentioned the long game, something we've already been talking about in terms of collaboration versus competition. What are some other key aspects of the long game that people playing the short game should be aware of? I think um, the, the, a couple of attributes of playing the long game um, wh- one of them is when, whenever I hear no, I always, I always think of, um, no for now, like that just pops yeah. in my head. Yeah. And if you're, if you're pitching a client or an investor or whatever it might be, whatever field you're in, you're going to get a lot of doors slammed in your face. You're going to get a lot of no's, but 
you're also going to get a lot of opportunity to build relationships. And when you, when we, when I hear a no, I always like to uh, talk, keep, keep a relationship with that person and find out, you know, what we could have done better, what we could have improved on, but then just always keep that person top of mind, reach out to them every six months, uh, make sure you stay on the radar. I mean, we've won a lot of clients that we've lost because we've kept the relationship. Mm-hmm. And when another agency or another company screws up and we've had that relationship and they liked us and we came in second or third, they're going to, we're going to be their first call to get them out of a jam. And yeah. so I always, you know, that's, that's long, that's long game thinking, not, you know, I can't believe this. I can't believe this jerk didn't pick us. We had the best presentation, like, you know, screw that. Right. That's yeah. really, that's short-term transactional thinking. And it comes from this like fundamental, I feel like a fundamental disbelief in your own product or service. Like all that tells me is that they just don't trust you yet. Right. So all you have right. to do is continue to prove that you're a trustworthy partner. And I've had that happen on multiple occasions with my show where I'll reach out to somebody and they say, no, they like, they're not going to come on my show. There's it's too busy. They're, they're too busy. Or, or my show at the, you know, at the time wasn't big enough for them to say yes. And instead of getting super upset about them not taking their time to come on my no name show at the time, I asked if there's anybody I can introduce them to. And I made like key introductions to get them on other shows that were way more prominent and bigger than mine of people that I, you know, had relationships with. And, um, and then through that, you know, five, six months later, was able to get them back on my show because that's, that's an uncommon action, right? Like they're not used to being, to telling somebody no, and then getting value from them anyway. It's like, wow, you, you, you didn't just care about you getting value from me. You actually cared about getting, like giving value to me. And, uh, so, so in a couple of months when you reach back out again, yeah, I'll probably end up saying yes, because you helped me out when you didn't have to. I mean, I think you're hitting on, on two amazing principles. Uh, I mean, I guess you inherently sort of have that, uh, a lot of, so a lot of the lessons of the book I had to learn, like their habits I had to learn. I'm mm. not a, I'm not a naturally generous person. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a naturally, I'm a naturally kind person. Yeah. Like I approach everyone equal, equally, but it's not, I'm not naturally um, giving stuff away at every turn. Yeah. And what you just hit on is a key component, which is generosity. And, and that is really about giving something without ever expecting anything in return. And when mm. you do that, you end up getting things back and with compound interest and you don't know how, you don't know exactly when, but if you're giving away things for free, like connections, advice, your time, you know, can even be a little gift that you're thinking about the person. Mm-hmm. Those, those things add up in the long run to, to pay off. But if you're, if you're doing it with the goal of getting something back, if that, you know, that's, that's the wrong way to think. You have to be thinking right. about being habitually generous and, you know, like it worked for your show and you didn't know how or when, but all of a sudden they, they gave you enough, they might not have done your show, but they gave you another great guest and recommended someone because you, you know, you, you gave them uh, something, you were generous with them, generous in spirit. And the other, the other thing that you had mentioned um, in that, in the part that you read is this idea of never let relationships drop to zero. And that's something that I've had to really work on and, and when I say habits in the book, if you do them enough over time and you're conscious about them, they become second nature and they, they become habitual and never let relationships drop to zero is, is, I mean, it goes in your personal life. It's for personal growth and 
sustained business success where you're always thinking about um, who you can reach out to. And when you reach out to them, it can be, uh, you know, you read an article and you're like, who, who, who would be interested in this article that's right. in this industry that I can send, send it to, or it can be any, you know, anything that reminds you of that person and keeping those relationships without hitting people up to ask for something. That's really critical for success. Totally. Yeah. It's couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, you guys have been fortunate to work with a lot of different, just really well-known brands like Fiverr and Papa Murphy's and, um, Miller Coors and, um, um, you know, Peloton. Yeah. Like Peloton, another big one, Pepsi, like just really big brands, Dove and all these other ones. Um, has there been, has there been a particular, maybe not just relationship, but particular piece of work or ad that you guys have worked on that you were just particularly proud of? Um, we did, uh, I'd say there's, there's two that really stick out. We did a big brand campaign for HBO that was called what connects us. And it involved, um, basically the cast of every show from, from game of Thrones. Um, uh, you know, every show you can think of, uh, Veep, you name it. Mm-hmm. And we had, uh, all the famous actors do that famous HBO sound of, you know, that. Sh- oh, yeah. And, and by doing that, um, we were able to just splice together gr- a great brand piece. But then for each community online, we were able to really highlight uh, the characters that spoke to them. And the reason why I thought that was just creative is we weren't saying anything. We weren't saying HBO has the best content and you can't find it on Netflix or or Amazon. We were saying that HBO... Uh, is premium entertainment, but we're just going to remind you of that sound. When you hear that sound, you know you're about to watch something great. Mm. And so we just did it in a way where you got the message, but we weren't listing, you know, f- listing features and benefits. We right. did it in a way where you you got it instantly in your subconscious. And so that work I was really proud of. Yeah, where you're and like then we linking, did, um, linking a soundbite to an emotion. That's right, exactly. And you're you're showing, not telling. Right. And then um, we recently did a piece for uh, MedMen, which is the, you know, yeah, the cannabis, they call it the, yeah, the cannabis company, they call it the Apple, Apple weed. It's, they're going to be the, you know, leading retail store for cannabis. Mm-hmm. And we created a, a, a film called The New Normal, which really shows the history and progression of, of cannabis in America. And, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that George Washington you know, grew it and sold it. And then it became, uh, you know, uh, criminalized. And then we were throwing people, we were incarcerating folks for, you know, having a little bit of cannabis to having it medicinally available to, you know, now it's going to be eventually uh, legal everywhere, but there's health and wellness benefits, um, you know, obviously depending on how you take it. And um, we, we call that the new normal. And it was just a very, I think clever way of showing the history with MedMen being sort of the the pioneer of the new normal. It used to be normal. It wasn't for a long time. And the new normal is, is where we are today. And so we're really proud of that work.
What about in like some of the different copy um, uh, pieces of copy that, that you had written for some of these campaigns, whether it be spoken on a radio ad or a television commercial or written on Facebook or a magazine spread or whatever it might be? Um, were there any like techniques or um, any cognitive biases that you really tried to point out with your copy? Um, and how important is that? Yeah. I, listen, I can tell you about building relationships and all this all day long. And, you know, the Google has a stat out there um, that I read recently that seven in 10 buyers in the B2B space had watched a video sometime in the buying process. Mm-hmm. But if your video is crap, then it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so right, the right. content, like what you're asking is really important. The copy is, and this is why we go back and research the customer so much, just like we research the voters. So when we run those ads, we know exactly the pain points. We know exactly the motivating points of those voters we're going to run those ads to. And now you can hyper-target through the digital platforms. And you know, one example of this, Travis, is negative ads. Like everybody hates negative ads. I get it. Yeah. I've written and, and a ton of copy on negative ads. And man, sometimes I'm literally taking a baseball bat to someone's head in a negative ad. And they can be kind of fun sometimes from my perspective. But <laughs> the reason we do them is because they work. They drive people from a deep psychological impact. Hmm. And they take action based on those. And so, you know, if I'm to apply this uh, on the business front, some of the greatest businesses of all time have used a comparative ad strategy. Now, they don't do it like politics where they would offend half the right, customer right, day. Yeah, exactly. but, but they do it in a way that offends no one, but brands their competition as inferior, as dumb, as whatever it is you want to brand it, doesn't offend the customer base at all, but completely brands... Um, uh, brands their competitor and 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 uh, so like apple did this with the mac versus the pc which is you know if you remember those ads from about 10 12 years ago which was mm-hmm. the yeah. very cool mac guy's young he's hip he's you know he's kind of funny and then the, the pc guy was this old guy with big square glasses and fat <laughs> he stumbles all over and so you're laughing right now this is the point like right. that ad right. campaign steve jobs put together as a strategy 368 of those ads and he only ran 68 of them because he was so, so hyper-focused in, in tapping into that emotional connection like we do in politics. Hmm. None of those ads offended anyone. But what it did was his whole point was he was going to launch the iPhone and he wanted to connect with the younger generation and he wanted to build the Mac market a little bit stronger because it was very poor at that moment. And when the, the Mac versus the PC and the iPhone that came together, it exploded that company. That's hmm. when it all happened for them. They still own the younger market. Right now, T-Mobile is, and John Legere, the CEO, is doing this like crazy against Verizon and AT&T, savaging them on their customer service, on their technology, on how their long-term contracts, and in, in how much they have to, their customers have to pay each month. He is crushing them. And that led to, a, well, they're in the, you know, about to do a merger with Sprint. And it's going to make them one of the, large, the you know, I think it's the largest cell carrier in the country. And it all came from a comparative ad strategy. And that resonates with me because I wrote so many of these ads, right? Mm -hmm. You are a business owner. 
this is great because what happens is you run these ads and in politics, you know, usually the process of a response, it takes like four to 12 days because we know those ads are coming. So we already have the response in the can. We're ready for it. Mm-hmm. In business, people are so caught off guard when, the, when they have a comparative ad run against them. And the typical timeline is six to 12 months for a response. Wow. And sometimes their response is so poor because they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to respond. They don't know how to be effective that they back themselves into a bigger corner all the while the business that ran the first comparative ad is, is moving forward and growing. <laughs> it it yeah. literally is the, and I, I write all about it. It's like the most important chapter in my book. And I, I cannot tell you, like it is the one thing that if businesses did this, it would give them explosive growth. But people are so scared to be authentic, to be, to be cutting edge and to meet their customers where they're at right now. Because we are in a scary society right now where the mob's going to come after you if you do anything that's not generic. Hmm. And that drives me nuts. <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I really like talking about, um, especially at the moment. I'm, I'm, like I told you before, I'm not a marketer, but I'm trying to learn a lot more about it. And um, I've been listening to uh, Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, currently. Sure. And, um, and just hearing some of these different strategies and tactics, that's, that's why I wanted to ask about one specifically. So I'm glad you brought up a very good practical, specific example of that. Um, because that's the kind of stuff that really just, that's, that's the kind of stuff that just makes sense to me, but it is done. I I feel like the effectiveness is so like underplayed that people just don't use them for, for whatever reason. They're so focused on making the video quality awesome or the, you know, photography awesome in their ad or like the graphic design is on point that they just fail to make the right copy and like pinpoint the right emotion on the person that's actually trying to buy their product. And uh, it's crazy to me to watch from, like I said, a, a bird's eye view as an outside perspective on the marketing space. Um, and then another book too, that I recommend uh, for anybody listening to this right now that wants to get into um, this kind of stuff a little bit more tactically is win bigly by Scott Adams. Have you heard of that book, Philip? Have you read that? No, but I have a company called win big media, so I should oh, yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert wrote this book and it was a, it was a, a book on persuasion about how Trump won the presidency. Yeah. Um, so it seems like it'd be right up, right up your alley. Just Well, point. you know, there's another company that encompasses everything we're talking about right now. And really I call it, I, I, I just wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago. It's on my medium page, but it's, um, it's called the Chick-fil-A economy. Hmm. Chick-fil-A is doing all of the things we're talking about and they are growing and become, I think they're like the third or fourth largest fast food um, company in the country right now. Wow. And what, one of the things is they have a com- total commitment to not only charities, but they take every, you know, they don't, they're not open on Sundays because their whole mission, their whole culture is that their employees need a day of rest and reflection. Now mm-hmm. people may not always agree with that. And wall street definitely doesn't want them to be closed on Sundays. But the fact is, is that that was a commitment the owners made to their employees and so it was a commitment to helping others. So they built a great company. They authentic, they, they, the authenticity of that company based on what I just told you, but also the quality of their product. 
Mm-hmm. We just had a party at my house a couple of weeks ago. We had charcuterie and cheese spreads. We had fruits and desserts and everything. And my wife, at the last minute, goes out and buys 100 chicken nuggets from Chick-fil-A. Within one hour of the party, those were all gone and nothing else had been touched. That is a great <laughs> there. Yeah. And then they market to emotion, like exactly what we just talked about. Chick-fil-A for 20 years has been running these TV ads where the villain, the bad the bad person in, in the whole campaign is themselves. What they do is they put a cow on their commercials that says, eat more chicken. Yeah. Don't kill me. <laughs> they turned the comparative ad and they made it that they made them the bad guy. Right. How brilliant is that? Yeah. And that is a, listen, think about this. If you're a business owner, how many marketing campaigns do you really want to run in your, in your, your, you know, the, the life cycle of your business? Because Chick-fil-A has run one, in 20 years. <laughs> right. One. And yeah. if you're going to invest money and spend money and make mistakes and do it with tactics and all of those things, then that means you're going to have another one in your, in your, you know, in, in holstered at some point down the line, because that one eventually won't work. Yeah. yeah. And Chick-fil-A ultimately gets this. And so, you know, I, I've dubbed it sort of the Chick-fil-A economy and I, and I believe that's it. They build loyal raving fans and they're only open six days a week it's crazy they're not even open seven days you're making me want to go get some chick-fil-a after i hang up what a great product (laughs) yeah well that's it for today's show if you want more advanced networking strategies as well as an instant network upgrade then consider partnering with my byn inner circle mastermind there are already dozens of high quality entrepreneurs in the group there's dozens of video lessons on networking there's monthly calls there's accountability crews and more all for the low investment of just 99 bucks a month so head over to byninnercircle.com to jump in that's byninnercircle.com thanks so much for joining us on today's show see you next time remember to leave every relationship better than you found it Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.